0: Um, And let me start today with two questions for you. Um, You don't have to do a show of hands, um, but you can think about this one for yourself. On on a scale of 1 to 10, how religious would you say you are? I wonder what score you would give yourself out of 10 for that one. And having imagined your number, is that a good thing? Um, Is it a good thing to be religious? I mean, you can imagine at the beginning of a sermon that comes as a slight double-edged sword, can't you? Um, And these final chapters of Luke's gospel find Jesus in one of the world's most religious places, uh, don't they? First century Jerusalem. And we're told right at the beginning of our passage there in verse 19 that there are teachers of the law and chief priests who keep recurring in these different sections looking for a way to arrest him. Um, As he approaches the city, back in chapter 19 in verse 41, we're told that Jesus weeps. Weeps because he can see where religion is leading people. If only you had known what would bring you peace, he says, back in chapter 19, verse 42. He's talking about peace with God, but they don't know it. And so they remain separated from God, and they're separated from him by their religion. And it breaks Jesus' heart. And what's happening here is, it's one of the themes, really, of Jesus' ministry. Um, In Luke's Gospel, it seems to be particularly apparent uh, where Jesus makes it clear that there are two things that can separate people from God and one is being religious and one is being unreligious those are the two kind of opposite ways that um, in our you know wicked human um rebelliousness we can find of rejecting the lord um if you like it they're exemplified by the two brothers in the prodigal son you know on the one hand you've got the younger brother and uh, you know he's he represents those who are separated from God because of rebellion against his ways, certainly not religious in any way, the opposite of being religious, just out there to enjoy life. And he's putting himself in danger. But of course, in that parable that Jesus tells, there is then the older brother, isn't there? The one who is a good boy, but who refuses to come into the party, tragically, at the end. He's upright, and he's respectable, but he's just as lost as his younger brother. And he represents those who are separated from God by their religiousness, by their worship even by their morals. People who think that God jolly well ought to be pleased with them because of the way they've lived their lives. And are most offended when Jesus suggests they're in just as much trouble as those who are more like the younger brother. Now, here's the thing. Almost by definition, those of us who are here in church week by week are more likely, I would suggest, to be like the older brother than the younger brother. That's not 100% or anything like that. But just by the fact that we come here week by week, that perhaps puts us into that category, and Jesus has many warnings for those who are religious. And that's the connecting theme between all these little sections that Carol just read for us there. There are several different accounts, aren't there, of things that happened to Jesus in Jerusalem. Um, In this last week of his life, on his way to the cross, what he's doing is tackling head on this kind of self-confident, self-satisfied religion that he found in these leaders in the city. Um, What is wrong with their religion? Well, we see something different in each of the accounts. So first of all, back in verses 20 to 26, they're espousing religion which denies God's influence, which tries to put God into a box and keep him contained there. Keeping a close watch on him, verse 20, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. That's important because it tells us, doesn't it, that this is not a real inquiry that they're making of Jesus. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the governor. So these people have judged Jesus already. This is just a way of getting what they want. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Well, given what we've just been told about them, that's just false, isn't it? It's sycophantic. They don't think that at all. But they ask him, is it right for us to pay the taxes to Caesar or not? Well, we all like that question, don't we? Because we all want to know the answer. It was a hot question 2,000 years ago. It still is. No one likes paying taxes, as far as I can discover. And of course, these weren't just any taxes either. Uh, Rome was the occupying power. These are kind of taxes being paid to a hated enemy who's taken over your country. a hated enemy whose emperor claimed to be divine so there's kind of a there's maybe a, a hint of blasphemy in bowing down to that by paying the tax and not for the first time they think they've got Jesus where they want him if he says pay the tax then his popularity goes out of the window and if he says don't pay the tax then they can have him arrested for stirring up trouble for the governing authorities they think it's a win win But what they're doing, and Jesus sees this straight away, is they're they're creating a kind of false dichotomy between what is God's and what isn't God's. And Jesus cuts straight through it. He sees that, that human tendency, and we probably do this to some extent, to divide up life into some kind of pie chart, for those of you who are mathematically minded. You know, I've got, this is work, you know, this is family, this is my free time, this is my religion. They've all got sectors of the pie chart. This bit is Caesar's, this bit is God's. God can have Sundays. Well, he can have part of Sunday morning anyway. I'm going to be a bit busy the rest of the day. But that kind of approach to life is not a Christian worldview. It's a secular worldview that divides it up. And Jesus says, whose image and inscription is on this coin? Now, that sounds like an easy question, doesn't it? Uh, We probably think it was a pretty easy question. They bring out a coin. It's a Roman denarius. It's got the emperor's picture on it. Whose image is this? It's Caesar's. I don't know if any of you are carrying coins this morning. We don't carry them as much as we used to, do we? But if you've got a coin in your pocket or your handbag, and I say to you, whose image is on it? Well, you've got two options at the moment, haven't you? You might have got one of the new ones with King Charles on. Probably got Queen Elizabeth on it still. Simple. But of course, there's actually more to it than that, isn't there? The Christian understanding of what it means to be human starts with Genesis 1, where one of the first things we're told is that all human beings are made in the image of God. So whose image is on the coin? Well, yes, it's Caesar's image. But who is Caesar? Well, he is a man, not a god. He's a man made in the image of God, like you and me, just like King Charles. Every coin in our pockets is a graphic reminder that all of life belongs to God because we are all made by him in his image. So, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. It's a great answer. Because if every person is made in God's image, including Caesar, then everything in God's world ultimately does belong to God. You can't say this bit here and that bit there. Who is it, after all, who allowed the emperor to rule for a time? Only the Lord who made him. Caesar is accountable to the same God to whom Rishi Sunak is accountable, and Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin, and anyone else you can think of. Made in his image, subject to him, given power and authority for a period, a limited period. So yes, there is a religious responsibility in God's world to pay taxes to the authorities to whom God has put in place. Uh, Yes, we must give to Caesar what is Caesar's. There isn't a religious get-out clause. Sorry if that disappoints you this morning. We don't have a get-out which allows us to ignore the laws of the land. But ultimately, we also need to remember that everything does belong to God. We give to God what is his. And this is probably where the rubber hits the road for us. If we're in any danger of doing the pie chart thing with our lives and saying work, family, free time, God, it doesn't work like that. We should be asking, how does our work time, our family time, our free time, give glory to God? And not just what we do for an hour or so on a Sunday morning. Give to God what is his. Secondly, in verses 27 to 40, we get to this slightly weird story. And it speaks to us of religion which denies God his right to speak. In verse 27, Jesus is approached by a different group of equally religious people whose religion was leading them away from God. This is the Sadducees. And this was a particular Jewish group in the first century who didn't believe in life after death. They say there is no resurrection. You will have heard the joke about them before. Uh, the Sadducees didn't believe in the afterlife. That was why they were sad, you see. Thank you very much. It's Not my joke. But seriously... These were people who denied God's power to raise people from the dead. More than that, in practice they were denying God a voice to speak because they hadn't believed what he'd said about the resurrection from the dead, either in the Old Testament or now through Jesus, who had spoken a great deal about it. They were the sceptics of the church in the first century, if you like, the anti-supernaturalists. They couldn't believe some of the things which God had said, so they rejected those parts. Essentially, what they wanted, seems, was a kind of social work with a religious badge on it. And again, that's not unique to the first century, is it? It's something which recurs through the years, and there's plenty of it about today. So these Sadducees, anyway, they come to Jesus with what they think is this clever question about marriage and how the law of Moses should be applied. And there was a, there was a thing where if, if a man died and left his wife childless, It was his brother's responsibility to raise children so that she would be looked after and the family line would continue. But they tell this ridiculous story about a man who dies and his wife has no children, so his brother marries her and then he dies without her having any children. So the same one happens to the third and the fourth. I mean, you'd think by the fifth and the sixth, the brothers would be getting a bit wary of this woman, wouldn't you? But at the end of the story comes what they think is the punchline. Verse 33. At the resurrection, whose wife will this woman be since all seven were married to her? Got you there, Jesus. You can't answer that one, can you? Of course, it's an incredibly contrived story, isn't it? And Jesus goes straight to the heart of the real issue, which is that what you're asking doesn't even arise for you because you don't believe in God's power to rise anyone from the dead anyway. So you're not asking this because you want an answer, but just because you want to catch me out. He tells them straight, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and the resurrection from the dead, it's a bit of a pointed phrase, isn't it? This age to come, which I know you don't believe in, you Sadducees, they will not marry or be given in marriage. Again, if they believed what God has said, they would understand that human marriage is itself a a symbol of what is to, to, to be in the age to come in the new heavens and the new earth, when all of God's people will be united to God as his bride. So Jesus is saying to them, you can't just import a problem from this age into the age of heaven. And he continues, they can no longer die, they will be like the angels, God's children, children of the resurrection, all things which are great truths for us as believers to hold on to. But just fantasy to the cynical Sadducees. And Jesus says, look, even Moses himself spoke of his ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As those who are still alive, he calls the Lord their God. They were long gone in Moses' day, Jesus says, so how can Moses speak like this? Because God is the God of the living. It's all there in the Scriptures, Jesus is saying to them, but you don't believe what the Scriptures say, and you're trying to control God, effectively by gagging him. Once again, as with the first one, it's an ongoing temptation which is still there. People have always been tempted to remove the bits of the Bible they don't like, the things that God has said which rub them up the wrong way. A um, hundred years ago, the great trend was to approve of Jesus as a, a wonderful moral teacher, but to doubt the miracles. In our modern world, that was often considered beyond the pale. You know, The healings, the virgin birth, the resurrection, things like that. In 2023, I, re- I would say people are much more relaxed about miracles on the whole. There's, um, there's a sense in the world among those who are Christians and, and not that the supernatural is real, there's a spiritual realm. But what many people today in our culture simply cannot believe that Jesus talks about are the morals, you know, the things he said about money and power uh, and relationships and marriage. Oh no, Jesus, we're not having that part. And the thing is, it doesn't matter which bits of scripture you choose, if you pick out the bits you like and the bits you don't like, then you are left with a religion which silences the voice of God. It's not God having the final say, it's you. And religion which denies God the right to speak and define what is true is always a disaster. And the third way in which we find religion which tries to prevent God having his way is where it specifically denies Jesus' identity. And that's what we see in these next few verses, 41 to 44. Jesus said to them, why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? Now these are words from the Psalms, Psalm 110, a Psalm about the promised Messiah. The people of Jesus' day would have known these words very well indeed. A bit like we know things like the Lord's Prayer. But the people Jesus was talking about had recited these words all their lives without ever really taking in the implications of what it was they were reciting. I guess that's the danger with liturgy, isn't it? Jesus is certainly not against the use of set readings and prayers. We use them week by week. But he is saying, make sure you keep your brain switched on as you worship, using words that you've said before. Don't just let them become automatic. The operative line in Psalm 110 is where David, speaking of the promised Messiah, says, the Lord said to my Lord. Hold on, Jesus is wanting to say to them. Is your brain switched on? What is David saying here about the Messiah? Who is the first Lord in that sentence? The Lord said, well, that's surely God, isn't it? The Lord said unto my Lord. Well, the my is referring to David who wrote the psalm. The second Lord, well, who's this? says Jesus. If the Messiah is David's descendant, his son, how can David call him Lord? Surely that's the wrong way round. Unless his descendant is much greater than even he was. Jesus is saying, Wake up. You know these words. Just think about them, will you? Think about what they mean. Instead of assuming that I'm just a blasphemer, I'm a dangerous man, just consider the possibility that maybe I could be who I say I am. And of course, that's precisely what many of these people in Jerusalem are not willing to do. That's why we keep reading in these passages in this section that they wanted to get rid of Jesus. He threatened their status, their comforts their self-confidence. If they accept that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, well, then they're going to have to accept a whole bunch of other things too. And for at least some of them, that was just not possible. And all of these kinds of false religion, denying Jesus' identity here, his voice with the Sadducees, denying him his influence in terms of trying to limit it into the box with the story about Caesar's coin are then all finally reflected in the last few verses of the chapter, 45 to 47. This form of religion which exalts the religious. While all the people were listening, verse 45, Jesus said to his disciples, beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues, the places of honour at the banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show-make lengthy prayers, these men will be punished most severely. In the light of what comes a moment later, just note that comment about what they do to widows' houses, what they expect of the poor, which they are not willing to do themselves. Jesus wept over Jerusalem in the previous chapter because it was full of people, leaders especially, who were devoted to themselves more than to God. And to their social standing. And to be honest there is a particular warning isn't there in verses like this for people like me, those who find themselves in leadership and with a certain amount of authority within God's church. There is a temptation always for people in that position to enjoy whatever status such a role may bring. Um, But it's the danger with any kind of religion which can give some kind of honour to people. It's not a danger, though, is it, if you're a pastor in a secret house church in China, or if you're trying to minister quietly to believers in Iran, knowing that if you're discovered, you'll be arrested. Again, it's worth remembering um, how these kinds of temptations particularly come to those of us who find ourselves in more comfortable settings. Um, Here is the thing, though, as we conclude. All four of these bits we've read in Luke 20 today are actually very similar Different stories, but if we are religious, they challenge us. They challenge us um, if we're religious but deny Jesus' influence by refusing to give to God what is his in all of our lives. For some of us, that might be a little bit of a prod in the stomach this morning. If we deny Jesus' identity by becoming a bit mindless as we recite words we've said a hundred times before without really acknowledging what they mean, and what they mean for us. That they challenge us if we can ever be tempted to deny Jesus a voice by picking and choosing from the things that he says and selecting the ones which we would already approve of them, rather than the ones which give us a real dig. Or, in this last section, if we ever get tempted to see being religious, our religion as a chance to kind of big ourselves up. Look at how important I am. To the extent that we might be prone to do any of those things, we're practising a religion which is about glorifying ourselves instead of him. And maybe it's worth reflecting for a moment, is there something in one of these which just gives me a little dig, the nudge that I need this morning? At the beginning of chapter 21, in those closing couple of verses, Jesus sees the rich, presumably these leaders, ostentatiously putting their gifts into the collection, and a poor widow placing in two small copper coins, worshipping God with all that she had, with all of her strength, feeble though it may have seemed. Worshipping God with her own security and her livelihood. We have to be very careful with these verses. In many ways, they are aimed more at the leaders. Um, I don't think it's so much that she's saying to us, you should be like this widow. In some respects, certainly, I don't think he's commending the practice of expecting the poor to do something which completely impoverishes them while the rich fail to do that. As much as anything, it is a dig at the well-off. Nevertheless, she is demonstrating where her treasure is to be found, isn't she? And after all of these encounters with people who've got religion wrong, Jesus says, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than the others. What does real religion look like? we could do far worse than look at her. Amen.